Hello, and welcome to The Taproot, the podcast that digs beneath the surface to understand how scientific publications are created. In each episode, we take a paper from the literature and talk about the story behind the science with one of the authors. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. And in this episode, we talk with Luca Komai, a professor at the University of California, Davis. We discuss a paper he published as part of his transition from industry to academia that he feels illustrates a mistake he made in choosing a research direction. We have a fascinating conversation about the power and the peril of striking out in new research directions, and Luca gives his advice on grant writing. The paper is Developmental Expression of Tomato Heat Shock Cognate Protein 80 by Koenig and Komai, published in Plant Physiology in 1992. Before we start, if you've been enjoying what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes because it helps other people find the podcast. And with that, let's head to the interview. So today's guest is Dr. Luca Komai. He was born and raised in Italy. He earned his first degree in agricultural sciences from the University of Bologna, MS in plant pathology from Washington State University, and then a PhD also in plant pathology from UC Davis. After doing a postdoc there, he joined a, at the time, little-known startup company called CalGene. As you may know, CalGene was the first company to produce a genetically modified product for grocery shelves, the Flavor Saver Tomato, which for various reasons is no longer on grocery shelves. In 1990, he took a faculty position in the botany department at University of Washington, where he was involved in a number of projects, including the development of tilling. And then in 2006, he moved to the UC Davis Genome Center and has been there ever since. Luca received the 2017 ASPB Innovation Prize for Agricultural Technology. And if you ask me, he should also get a prize for being the best mentor and also some excellent teaching confused and or overambitious undergraduates. He's done some really amazing work flipping his intro genetics classroom, and we'll put the link to his blog about how that's gone over the last couple of years. So welcome to the Taproot, Luca. Thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I think the first thing we'd like to do is just have you sum- like summarize the paper that you've selected for discussion. Um, it's a plant physiology paper from 1992. So can you just give it a quick uh, one to two minute summary? Sure. That is a paper that um, it actually comes from my work at CalGene. And at the time, we were trying to engineer resistance to glyphosate or Roundup. And what we had, we had an enzyme which uh, uh, was tolerant to the action of, uh, of the herbicide. It was called EPSP synthase. And we wanted to express it at a high level in the plant apices where Roundup is transported to and accumulates. So to express it efficiently, we started looking for promoters that uh, would work very well in uh, the growing points of plants. And that was essentially a cDNA screen. We were looking for high-level cDNA that uh, uh, hybridized well to cDNA probes made from the very tip of the tomato plant. And we were picking the genes. So this is like an old-timey microarray, right? This is before microarrays. Exactly. When we looked at uh, this particular clone, it was the heat shock cognate protein 80. And at the time, 
there wasn't a lot known about this type of proteins. It's, it's a very common Ichok protein. But it turns out that that Ichok cognate 80 comes in two forms, one which tends to be expressed under Ichok and the other one which is actually expressed uh, in growing points of plants. And it's expressed there because it does a number of important things such as binding a steroid repressor and things like that, keeps them in an inactive form and keeps them around ready for um, to initiate their transcriptional response. Anyway, we had this, uh, this protein out this gene and we were very interested in why is it expressed uh, in the way that it is. It is. So uh, we started characterizing what was required for its expression. And essentially the paper there describes um, what is required, in, meaning that it has a promoter and so forth. Nothing surprising. It is, it is a very, in a way, descriptive paper. As I look at it, it, it was done well. It, you know, it has uh, the person that did most of the work is um, at the time was called Anne Koning. She went on and, and changed her name later and her current name is Anne Slade. Anyway, that paper uh, described the activity of this promoter and that inspired me to start a project that was my first project in academia. So this is a, a you know a sort of a wonderful snapshot into how science was done uh, 25 years ago. I, I think it's really interesting that Liz tried to contextualize it for our uh, younger uh, listeners by saying this is sort of like a microarray. I know, and which I nobody think, even uses anymore, right? I should have said RNA-seq. <laughs> I realized how dumb that was. <laughs> So, I, and I think it's really, I think, a, just a testament to how much science has changed in the last 25 years that you, as one of the first figures, had to put the entire gene sequence typed out in, in three different ways. Well, you, you, you know, not a lot of people had access to internet. The internet didn't exist. So how would you get the sequence? You know, you basically copied it. You, you would type it in. You would look at the paper and, and type. And... <laughs> <laughs> you know that sequence that was sequence you know with with uh, it was sanger it was radioactive uh, uh you know dioxy ter terminator i remember looking through the gels we actually sequenced you know little touch of of uh, of elegance there we actually sequenced the rna as well we took the native R rna and and uh, uh hybridized it to a primer and then extended that primer. The primer was was highly radioactive, so we could actually uh, sequence the 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 the, the mRNA uh, uh, in a complex mixture and determine where it terminated, meaning where the five prime was. So we actually knew exactly where the five prime was, which most people don't even notice as you look at that paper. But it it was done it was done robustly. So um, so Luca, you these experiments were performed both at CalGene and at UW, so this is sort of like straddling your career transition, is that right? Exactly. Uh, it, it, the, we characterized some, uh, we, yeah, I can't remember exactly what was done at UW, but about maybe 30% of the work was done at UW. Maybe you can talk about the decision to leave industry and uh, what was the motivation for leading industry and then how you took this project with you and sort of as a side note I just want to if you want an interesting perspective on the whole development of GMOs as a field in which Luca is 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 highlighted in a few spots there's a, a really good book that actually Liz gave me 
several years ago called Lords of the Harvest uh, by Daniel Charles, who is now the science correspondent at NPR. And, uh, and there's a few amusing anecdotes about Lucas' time at Calgene there, uh, but it's, it's a really good uh, reference. But maybe, Luca, if you could just talk us through the decision to leave Calgene, start at UW, and, and how you took that, this project with you. So I joined Calgene because in 1981, it provided the opportunity to do something which at the time appeared to be crazy. You know, we would engineer plants. We wanted to, to alter them. And, and, you know, we weren't even close. 1981, there was not, we, the only thing that made it even vaguely possible was that we knew that agrobacterium was putting DNA into the plant genome. I, I was wait, there no, through wait, the- Wait, so what's attracting you to it is that it's crazy? Yes. <laughs> I, I, okay, I'm I, just, uh, I just want to make sure that was, that's what you really meant. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've always liked challenges and that one sounded like a, like a good challenge. And in fact, I had a great time. It was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to be at Calgene. I think my experience was shared by, uh, at the time, by, by uh, many other scientists who joined companies. And it was a little bit of a, of a wild west at the time because nobody knew what to do. So uh, we didn't have bosses, by definition, that would tell us what to do. You know, you just landed there on a the bench and started doing work. And they were, they were hoping that you would do something that eventually would turn into a product. You know, we had science board, but even the science board, who were very distinguished scientists, really didn't know what would have to be done next. Except, you know, they had good scientific principles and all that stuff. But, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it was the Wild West. Then, as time went on, things became a little more structured. And people started talking to me about products, products. Like, well, what, what, what are these products? You know, I, you know I, I was in there for the fun, for the science. And... I understand, of course, a company has to focus on products, but but for me, it became it became a little bit uh, taxing to 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 think about products, and and some people may love it. You know, you just sit there and 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 tinker it and make it better and better, and you have the satisfaction of seeing something hitting the market, and it could be something very useful to farmers and so on. But uh, for me, I, I just like to go into things that presented themselves as challenges and 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 you know i like the, the the discovery part the early part i didn't like the later part so basically i decided that that i had to move on and uh, go to academia eventually a couple of years went by i applied to to seattle and i got the job that was uh, my transition do you have trouble convincing uh the faculty at uw and other places that you could could make this transition back? I mean, I don't, this doesn't seem like a very common route. Do you think it was easier back then? It would be harder now or? or Actually, I, I thought back and uh, I, back then it was, it was relatively easy and it would be easy again if you are in an industry where you're perceived to be at the cutting edge of something. Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, I would imagine that, I'm, I'm guessing, but I would imagine that somebody Who's in in the who's in the genomics industry as some cutting edge uh, of you know some genome sequencing assembly the or stuff like that? Microarrays, right? Would look pretty attractive. Yeah, microarrays <laughs> to to a university environment. 
Yeah. So at the at, at the at the time, uh, there were a number of people like me who um, had spent a number of years with the industry, and uh, then went on to to um, join join the university. And and that's because those circumstances were fulfilled. Meaning we were at, at the cutting edge. You said seventy percent of it was done at Calgene, and then you finished it off at UW. Was was it just that? It was a little bit looser time there, and Calgene didn't consider everything to be intellectual property, or was there a big negotiation to take this project with you, or how how did that work? That you was like that you could take a project with you. I mean, I think I would think today that would be very hard to do. Uh, well, maybe, but I I, I thought that uh, Calgene was very generous, and uh, I think they had filed a patent on that promoter. It turned out that that. Uh, I don't think, I think some version of it might have been used, but you know, it, it was no problem at all. And in fact, as I think about what, what uh, um, I could have taken, uh, one option, I should have probably continued working on, on, uh, on, on Roundup. It would have been kind of interesting. There were some interesting questions that, and they would have allowed me to actually do that. Uh, so no, there wasn't, there was no problem in, in, in taking things that I had been, uh, uh, patented, but um, they like people to go ahead and publish because for a for a young company, publications uh, meant credibility. Okay, so then so so you had this project, and this was this was what you were starting your lab on, or this was sort of a side project that you were taking with you, and to get a publication running, was this was this like the the paper that you pitched in your job talk as this is what's going to start my lab and we're going to develop from there or how, how did you how did yeah, this was that? Mm -hmm. there was an aspect of it which which um i pitched um and in retrospective i think it was a mistake for me to do that uh, but the aspect that i pitched was that we had discovered uh, and coning and i had discovered that the boundaries of this gene, the, the upstream region and the uh, downstream region, and even one uh, part of the of a large intron, which is at the beginning of the gene, could be showed uh, that they could associate avidly to what was called the nuclear matrix. So you could take uh, nuclei and uh, um, strip them of, of, uh, of most DNA so that you leave nuclear ghosts where you have you know the the outer envelope and and the proteins involved in in uh, um, in in the internal structure of the of the nucleus and you could show that these fragments specifically were bound by 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 those regions which was an interesting project uh, and and you know we followed up in the laboratory for for about four years you were calling them we were calling them i was in the lab at the time uh, as an undergraduate, we were calling them scaffold attachment regions, right? That's right. So they'd be called either matrix attachment region or scaffold attachment region and refer to the nuclear matrix or the nuclear scaffold. And it makes much more sense now that we're looking at the 3D structure of, uh, of the genome, you know, like in te using technique like HI-C. We now know that, of course, we can demonstrate sites where the genome is folding and where uh, where domains are being formed, and so, uh, but back then it was known that that you could identify regions that that perhaps contributed to these domains by becoming associated with 
with uh, um, an insoluble uh, component of the of the of the nucleus. So, so which part of this feels like a mistake? Because up till now, it sounds exciting. Yes. No. It. You know. It. <laughs> it's. A, it's a interesting to explain why it was a why it was a mistake. In retrospective, I think it was a mistake because it was not unique enough. It's much better, or at least for me and probably for a number of people, if these projects are not in an era where a number of other people are working. Essentially, my recommendation, you know, when I do it in a colloquial way uh, with, with a postdoc and grad student, I tell them, you know, why would you want to compete? You know, when you compete, it's possible that you lose. You know, your, your competition could publish ahead of you. You know, you, 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 they, they're going to compare your, your grant proposal side by side with whatever else somebody else is doing, which is very similar. So that is, is bad news. It, it's, that's, that's a practical aspect. There is also another aspect which I think, um, which I think is made it wrong for me, which is that at the time, it was a bit of an easy choice. You know, you kind of say, oh, you know, I got this thing. It, it's got scaffold attachment region properties. Um, let's pursue that. There's going to be something interesting there. But I actually didn't take a, I, I should have taken a step back, which I did a few years later and said, okay, what is the most important thing, most relevant thing, and in a way, most unique thing that I could do that would be, that would be relevant, that would, that would uh, uh, produce interesting science, that would, that would fulfill both what I want to, to do, the type of things that make me happy, but also it would look as novel as possible to the community of my colleagues. That's so, so that. that's so challenging though, Luca, because like if you, you can go in that direction and then, you know, I mean, I did that right as a postdoc, but then nobody cares about or cites what you're doing because nobody else is working on what you're working on. And so getting people to appreciate and think what you're doing has impact can be really challenging if you're doing really, you know, new stuff or stuff that other people aren't doing. But, you know, and if I look at you two guys, you have very definite scientific persona. I mean, if I think of Ivan, it's clear what Ivan does. And in a way, Ivan does not have a lot of competition. You know, people say, oh, yeah, you got to do, you know, this, this ionomics. Go talk to, to Baxter, you know. And, and <laughs> so he, he has, he has a, an identity. But if there were five other Ivan Baxters out there all doing the same identical things, uh, it would practically, it would make things more complicated for us. I think the universe would come to an end. Beginning of the apocalypse. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That is what I was trying to say, yes. There, there are certainly people who think that. That's true. Okay, so, so Luca, that's a really interesting question because uh, for those who don't know, Ionomics was developed in David Salt's lab. It, they started that before I joined, and then I joined as a postdoc. And when I was out on the market, I was pitching Ionomics. And the biggest question I kept getting was, how are you going to, how is what you're proposing going to be different than what David Salt does? And is there really room for two of you? And, you know, for both David and myself at the time, it was obvious there was, there was a, a burgeoning field, but I think this idea of 
trying if you're trying to find the sweet spot between something that's you're going to be able to attract grant support for because it's an important question something that you're good at and excited about and something that is unique and a question you don't have competition for that sounds really daunting to me <laughs> if i was a junior so it sounds really daunting to me now uh, yeah like what's in the middle of that venn diagram <laughs> there's few questions are in there yeah i agree i agree that is daunting um and of course uh, some of this comes because you know you're looking at it from the perspective of ten years later, and you said, "Oh, I could have done that. I could I could have worked on microRNA. I, maybe I would get the Nobel Prize." <laughs> 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 We're joking, but one important thing is that you have to also recognize what you are good at. You know, what are your strengths? I recognize, you know, after many years of uh, doing science, that I'm a good initiator. But I'm not a good follow follow upper, meaning that 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 I have to 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 um, you know labor a little bit to finish things. If I look at my strength, um, my strengths are to to look for you know go go exploring you know, and I I can find uh, the tip of the dinosaur sticking out, and then you know, in term, but in terms of digging it out completely, it's probably not really my 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 complete strength, right? I can make a metaphor there. Yeah, um, that was that was beautiful. <laughs> so, so, if you have this self knowledge now, do you try to form collaborations or make sure that you have people in your lab who are closers who can like wrap up a project? Are you like consciously doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So you have to to um, you know in in industry it worked well because you know you naturally form teams where where you know different people have different strengths, but you can do that in academia too. And I've collaborated uh, with, uh, with people and also get, you know, and you identify um, folks in the, in the laboratory who can do that. But the important point is that you, you have to be in a position where you can compete effectively for funding. And I felt having been in, in, uh, in um, panels and, uh, study groups where scientists show up with their proposals i found that it's it's much easier to get funded if somewhere you you stand you stand uh, distinct from it's not easy to, to do now of course you pointed out an important point which is well if it's too far out people will not understand what you're doing and uh, um and yes so that there lies the challenge but you want to also, as a as a as a scientist, uh, you know, if 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 you look in the mirror in the morning, you say, okay, I got twenty years ahead of me. What am I going to do with this twenty years? What is the the what could I do that is really valuable? You know, what is the the uh, what's going to uh, make things happen for me, and 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 what's going to be useful to other scientists? So that's the type of consideration which I do find important. And, and and you know when I sit down and write and write write a grant a grant pro, 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 proposal, which over the years I got relatively good at doing. You may recall this when you were in my lab. We we did run out of money, right? Maybe you were. Yeah, you know, yeah we uh, did. <laughs> it was not good, <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know the, 
so now when I write, I actually enjoy writing grants. I, I sit down, I, I think it's a challenge. I don't expect to be funded. I feel that it is a challenge. It is a battle, so to say, between me and the panel who's going to evaluate me. You know, it's, it's, I see as a battle of wits. What can I tell them that is going to make it compelling? And how do you do it? And uh, I find that, that that is a creative moment. That is, although at times I would say, oh, it'd be nice if I could get just a little bit of money fixed without much trouble. But actually by writing this proposal, I come to think of it in a way that really I might not have thought on a day-to-day exercise. It forces me to sit there, look at my pawns and my kings, my king and my queen, and I got to move them around. I got to figure out what's the best strategy and really, really crystallizes that moment, which is important for every scientist. Was there something that got you with this, when you were looking for these, at these ghosts for the the structural associate design, was there something like a, a, a eureka moment for you when you realized that it was time to move past that? Oh yes, absolutely. So you're, you're, you're referring when, when did I realize that, you know, I really had to, to change my strategy? Well, you know, I ran out of funding, so that's a pretty <laughs> hard realization. <laughs> a light bulb moment, I think it's called. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I joke with people. I tell them, you know, in those days, you know, I had no funding. And, you know, a good day was when I would receive a sample of yellow tips in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we ever got as far as, like, washing out yellow tips. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't that bad. Uh, but, uh, you know... That was the moment, and and that's when I realized that I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to follow the type of strategy that I had outlined, and I chose to work, you know, so I chose to address a totally different question. I said, you know, plants do something very special. It's called polyploidy. They're not the only organism that that, that does that, but they, they certainly do it very efficiently. And there are a number of questions intrinsic to the genetics and the molecular biology of a polyploid. And I started thinking, what were those questions? And started addressing them and uh, um, did some very early preliminary work that I could do just by growing plants and crossing and looking at things. And that worked out very well. So Luca, what would you tell a young person who is maybe like Ivan was describing for himself is about to try to position themselves for an academic position? How would you, what advice would you give them that's, that, uh, uh, you know, is concrete about how they should go about their last couple years of their postdoc as they prepare? Yeah, interesting question. So the first advice that I would give to somebody who's entering the academic uh, career path is to prepare themselves and, and you know, essentially what are the expectations? So you have to develop a mind frame, in my opinion, that accepts failure as a path towards success. So let me explain what I mean by failure. And I mentioned as I was when I was saying, you know, I write grants and, you know, I really don't expect to be funded, but every time I get funded, I'm happy. Um, when we write a paper and we write a proposal to, to an agency, that paper and that proposal is going to be examined in a subjective way. People who are going to look at it, they're going to try to do the best they can most of the time, but they do it in... It's a subjective uh, exercise, which means that you never know absolutely which way is going to go. 
and sometimes they may look at it and say, oh, this is not good or this is not good enough. And, and we have to, I think, accept that as a, as a, as a, as a possibility. And what, what is the remedy? What, how do you overcome that? Well, because it is, it is subjective, your chance of success increases with the number of times that you can send your proposal out. So essentially you want to get into the mind frame that you will submit proposals. Of course, you will try to learn from every time you submit this, this proposal and you get, you get review back, but, but understand that every time the process that looks at it is a subjective process. So the, 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 it's, it's a stochastic process. So you can do the best to get yourself into, into, into the top range. And then it's up to essentially good luck and, and good luck will work if you, if you can, if you can repeat the experiment, you know, because eventually it's going to have to work out. So that's, that's, that's the, the mind frame. The next aspect is how do you come to, to, to decide what would be your research area? Well, certainly that there is a certain, you know, you, you may not be able to move laterally very easily, but, um, I think if I, if I look at the career of, of, of very successful scientists, many of them had demonstrated that ability, they demonstrated the, the quality to retrain themselves. In my case, I identified a gap, identified an area where a lot of work was, you know, was, was missing. And so by the time I submitted a, a proposal, I was, I was successful. And the first proposal I wrote on that, I believe got funded. Because I think the panel looked at it and said, oh, you know, this guy is looking at one aspect of plant biology that, that has really been neglected. I recognize the challenge in doing that. You know, that's what we want to aim at. We want to aim at identifying a critical gap in knowledge that can be addressed by us effectively, but also can be recognized by our peer to be worthwhile and and unfortunately you would like to say well there may be something a gap of knowledge that nobody else understand because it's so far ahead of your time that you you know unfortunately in that type of area it will be very difficult to get funded and so that would probably not be a good decision i worry that in our current funding climate to be a more competitive uh landscape overall that it's a lot harder for junior people to make these big shifts in where they're going Certainly after, after they have a job and before tenure, it, it, I wonder if there's enough room for, for, for people to do that. I do agree. There is a challenge there. On the other hand, it may be possible that some people have tried to get, get funding for a number of years on Area X. And maybe Area X is not a good area because of, the, of some intrinsic problem. And I think one big problem, if there are too many people in area X, then it's very difficult. In my opinion, that's, that's, that's very bad. And so at that point, you, you know, you're on a sinking ship anyhow, you might as well swim and try to find something that floats. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to wrap up here. Uh, thank you so much, Luca, for sharing all your wisdom. It's actually really neat to hear about how you kept all throughout your career, you kept recalibrating and just sort of reorienting yourself according to um, what what piqued your interest and, and kept your lab afloat. 
So, Luca, where can people find you if they want to contact you, say, through social media or email? So, you know, you can just Google my name. I have a blog. I have a, I have a website. I do use Twitter now and then under uh, at Luca Kumai handle. So that's uh, how people can find me. Ivan, where can people find you? People can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at at E Haswell. Um, and if you have any comments, ideas, responses, or we just want to start a conversation, you can email uh, Ivan and me at taproot at plantae.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts and stories. Thanks again, and Luca. Thanks, Thanks you guys. It was right. a pleasure. If you liked listening to The Taproot, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes as it helps other listeners find the podcast. We're also considering adding a bonus wrap-up episode to this first season that addresses questions from you, the audience, and might include a few little snippets from our blooper reel. If you have any questions, please send them to our email address, taproot.plante.org, or tweet at us. The Taproot is produced by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. Our producers are Melanie Binder and Mary Williams. And The Taproot is edited by Tasneem Bufafel. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.